another Thursday. That means it's the Enigma Hour. With me, Captain Tiki, Olaf Phillips. I got Dave over here. Uh, reporting for duty, Captain. Yes. We're back every Thursday, 10 p.m. to midnight here at KADLP 103.5 FM Sonora. Hog Samiak. Okay. Happy, happy Hanukkah. Oh, all right. Did it start? Uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow, okay. Well, happy pre-Hanukkah. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, they didn't actually start doing public menorahs till the 1970s. Really? Actually, a minor holiday. Uh, yeah, uh, some people actually have a Hanukkah bush, so they won't feel left out with a Christmas tree. You know, I had a friend in high school, he had a Hanukkah bush. <laughs> It's just there was only one present per night. All I remember is I love potato lockers and uh, jelly-filled donuts. I mean, how can you not like (laughs) that holiday? Maccabees, the hammer, festival of the lights. (laughs) We in in Scandinavia we have lefska. It's like a potato pancake. Okay. And you have the myth to go along with it? No. <laughs> there isn't a myth about the... Re- Not you, that I'm aware of. Do you know why eat people it. eat latkes? No. Because they're not. fried. Okay. And that's the oil. Oh, I get it. Okay, yeah. The oil from the land. Right. Land. Why did they eat uh, jelly-filled donuts? That I have no idea. Because the oil is fried bread. <laughs> <laughs> but it's sweet. So, so do you have hummus as well because there's oil in it? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess you can. Yeah. 
It's time to party, though, and be festive. Yes. It's a magical time. Hey, do you remember that movie by Ralph Bakshi? It was called Wizards? Yes. It was the two brothers. The pinball one. And uh, there was the, um, the evil brother. Right. And, and then the uh, good brother. Right. But the good brother was just this jolly old elf. As you're flipping me off, by the way. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and uh, he's oh, got, he's got fl- that he's got that real off, he's got that real sexy uh, fairy that's always with yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, He's always partying. He never can get any of the tricks right, you know. And the uh, the other brother, um, he used modern technology, brainwashing techniques. <laughs> No, he would yes. show these films, like he used technology, the media, um, to pervert people's minds. You know, over the period of weeks, right? Uh, and we have these different topics, right. but you can uh, start seeing all these connections the to all these topics. Oh. Well, yeah, because like, uh, who was a couple weeks ago, was it? Alan Greenfield. Alan Greenfield, yes. And he's talking Dr. about Alan Greenfield. Uh, the uh, the dark ones, the dark wizards, the dark magicians. The Black Lodge. The Black Lodge, right. right. And then uh, last week we had the uh, who was that guy? Ron Patton. And he's talking about the MK Ultra. Mind control. And that is black magic. It is. It really is black magic. And you know what's real curious about it? is that when the CIA came in and bought up the world's supply of LSD and thought they were going to use it for mind control, and really what ended up happening, it was freeing people's minds instead of uh, corrupting people's minds. And it just brings up the thing that you can use. It's the same principles. It is. Uh, whether you want to... I mean, if you want to join Skull and Bones and plot world domination, you know? No, it or, is. It is. Or, no, you're right about that. Or if you want to work on a local level in your community for the betterment of no, yourself and others. Ericksonian hypnosis works either way. NLP. And, uh, yeah, well, what I notice is that, I mean, other than putting people in induced comas and playing loops. um, Trauma loops. uh, I would, uh, like the whole principle behind LSD is life-structured death. It's a um, re-imprinting. Sure. And uh, they caught on to that and tried to use it for evil ends. You know, the other night I was watching this... uh, I don't know. It's not. It's a documentary, but it's more of like a mind trip. And it was. It was like David Bowie's life. Oh, and they and did his, a real artsy, huh? Yeah, and, it, and his his philosophy and psychology. And yeah, it, yeah, it, he. You could tell that at some point he had done the done the LSD and. Well, it's not it just expanded. the LSD, but it's such the no, perfect no, no, no. example. Was, no, he's a very good example because it, it altered his perception. I mean, he was also an alcoholic, but... Well, look at all the personas that he went through. Oh, yeah, I know. He reinvented uh, himself. He kept reinventing himself. Yeah, I know. And uh, Until so... Until the end. I believe, if you've ever listened to Black Star... Man, I saw that music video, his last one, and it's... I think it's that, heavy. I think that 
Black Star in the in the end when he knew. I think you saw the actual David Bowie. Because one of the things he kept saying in interview after interview after interview is that you're not seeing the real me. I'm constructing these profiles. I'm constructing these personas to avoid having you see me. But at the same time, he also talked about that he liked to do things that pushed him to the edge that he considered dangerous. And apparently he was somewhat of an introvert. And so he would just go walking down the street. That was like a huge thing for him. But, you know, all of us, like, uh, I mean, to me, David Bowie, the era that I liked best was when he was the young Duke. Oh, sure. And uh, I thought that was some pretty classy music. And, you know, he has a Christmas thing with Bing Crosby. Yeah, it's and the like guy the can mo- really the, sing. The most, oh, he can. <laughs> It's like the most uncomfortable video to watch because um, they don't want to be there. Neither of them want to be hanging out. Yeah, you're right. But when they start singing the two songs together, oh yeah, uh, it's it's a nice no, he thing. Can, he can yeah, really his sing. last music video was kind of spooky, but see how he kept reinventing himself. Until he kept end. changing his story. He did. And he realized that all life and existence is really just these constructs. And, you know, interestingly enough, it was kind of funny. They, they were panning his bookshelf. And you should see the amount of esoteric stuff that was in there. I mean, from Crowley's in, in, uh, Magic and Theory and Practice to, you know, UFOs and everything in between. I mean, at one point he took on the persona of an alien. Not just in the movie, you know, but but Ziggy Stardust, I mean, was an alien. Alien rock star. So when I... But the LSD expanded his mind, you could tell. Yeah, I remember when uh, there's a story about uh, Steve Jobs and and he made the request. I don't know what it was. Like, I want that screen in color. I want no... I want the fan to have no sound or right. something like that. And uh, the, the engineer that's working on this uh, looked up at him and said, uh, uh, that's not possible. And then Steve Jobs looks at him and says, well, you've never taken LSD, have <laughs> you? Uh, because all things are possible, you realize. There's like what John Lilly, see how uh, these things can really be strung together. Uh, John Lilly... Um, uh, you know, when we talked about the Quince Echo, right. and it says, uh, 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 what you believe to, uh, to be true is true or can be true within certain limits. Right. And uh, that's exactly what he's talking about. You know, I, uh, I don't know if you call it like Mary Prankster training or not, but you know, the Mary Pranksters formed there in Palo Alto. Right. And um, I was there just as the um, MFU, the Mid-Peninsula Free University, was breaking up. But it was still there. And there was this thing called the Palo Alto Center. And um, I took these series of classes at a Vic Lovell psychodrama workshop. Okay. But they were Gurney Norman. And he's the guy that wrote... Uh, you know, in the Whole Earth Catalog? Right. 
and uh, I think it was the last one or something. Yeah, he wrote like a novel for A it. novel. Yeah. Every page or every other page had a page of the novel in the corner. Yeah, I remember because we, we actually had, it's now a UFC gym, but uh, when I was a kid, we had a Whole Earth Access store where it was like the catalog like manifest as a store. Wow. It was crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. My, so, oh, go ahead. Uh, well, his name was Gurney Norman. Yeah, the guy that put out whole Earth Cat, like Stuart Brand. But they all lived together there. And uh, Gurney lived on Perry Lane. Uh, Stuart Brand lived up on Skyline. And, oh, Skyline. Uh, but there was a place called The Land. And a lot of uh, it was like just Commune City. I stayed for a while at the Pacific High School where Bob Ware uh, went to school. It was a free high school. Okay. And Buckminster Fuller came there and helped the kids make domes. And everything okay. was, uh, all these places were domes. The only problem I could see with a dome, they're super strong structures. Uh, we had a big landslide and a whole redwood tree fell on top of a, uh, one of the domes, uh -huh. and it didn't even crack the puppy. When when I was at Davis, we we had an experimental village, which we called the domes, and it was this. It was for. It was for graduate students, but it was this like weird kind of experimental village. Uh, the problem with uh, domes that I found is that uh, the rain. You can't put gutters up on a dome and the water goes up underneath the dome. You know, I never thought but about that. Um, but they, uh, and then there was also a uh, bath dome that was like this plexiglass okay. and we would fill up this big tank and light a fire. And when it got real hot, we opened it up and it spilled down to all these little pools. There were a communal pool, and then these uh, branches, like <laughs> something. Just, and then the glass would, it wasn't glass, it was some kind of plastic or something, and it would fog up, you know, so you couldn't see. And it was a communal bath. Oh, the, uh, you had to go down little paths, kind of like Columbia College. You have to go down little paths to get places. And uh, you pass this little pond, and it had the yellow submarine uh, coming up. On the, really? Yeah. The yellow submarine? Yeah. It was like, it was, it was super cool. Uh, the thing closed down, though, and then uh, it's now a Buddhist retreat up there. You know, I've heard of that, the Buddhist retreat up there. Yeah. Yeah, it's very famous. Well, that uh, used to be the Pacific High School project. And they had a common kitchen. But, but my point was with uh, Gurney Norman and the Psychodrama Theater, and we, it was like myths to live by, but it was a homespun thing. It was like stories to live by. And we'd, we'd uh, people don't want rules in their life. They want roles to act out, to live. And uh, it's just the stories that we tell one another that creates... Um, by telling stories, um, it's, uh, we learn how to act and live. 
and we learn about uh, things. Uh, we don't. Um, we don't discover ourselves really. We create ourselves, and that's where the magic comes in. And if we're getting close to Christmas, you might as well talk about uh, magic. <laughs> yeah, but um, it can be broached. Okay, here we go. All right, so lay, first lay, there, lay it on me, Dave. All right, so first there was the Word, and then the Word was made flesh, right? Okay. But it was the Word that came first. I mean, it was the Word that had the priority. If you can name a thing, right. it comes into existence. Well, also remember in esoterics, if you can name a thing, you can control a thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they'd have... Uh, Doth, the golem, Emet, uh, um, uh, yeah, it was by the combinations of the letters. Uh, so it was the word. You're totally right. And you know Joseph and the Dreamer. No. You know, well, okay. There's this cat in the Bible that uh, um, he could interpret dreams. Okay. And that was like an occupation. Um, uh, yeah, but uh, what you realize is, is the interpretation of the dream. After you name the dream, that's what's important. Your dream is just kind of this nebulous thing. Right. Until you put the interpretation on it. You know, I actually, I had a repetitive dream for most of my life. And I, it's funny, I actually had a friend who could do dream interpretation. And I asked him to interpret it. And once he interpreted it and I understood it, it went away. Oh, it wasn't a good dream? No, it was a very bad dream. Uh, yeah, I uh, wake up sometimes in, in, my, uh, in the middle of the night and like I'm bathed in sweat and I'm panting, you know? And uh, Julie goes, uh, wow, bad dream, huh? Or I'm talking in my sleep. And stuff, and I'm battling some epic battles in my dream. And I wake up, and, I, and she goes, Nightmare. And I go, Yeah, but it was great. You <laughs> it know, it's was, it was exciting. <laughs> I have these great battles on oh, yeah. epic things. You know, it's funny. I, I do firmly believe, even to this day, that the dream that I had, it comes from somewhere, and it, it's not my, psych, my subconscious. And the reason being is a once long ago when I was very young, you know, I was, I was, uh, I think I was like 19 or 20. <clears throat> I was talking in my sleep and they woke me up and I was like, what, what? And so I, all oh, you were talking in your sleep, you were being too loud. And I'm like, okay, what did I say? And <clears throat> kind of, wrote down everything I said and I'm looking at it I'm like, Oh my God, I was calling in an art artillery strike. And it's like, but I was never in the military. So how would I know how to do that? Well, I mean, I, I know because I watched documentaries and read things like, but I'm also 48 now, you know, this is 30 years ago. How at 18, 19, 20 years old, if I was never in the military, how did I know how to call in an artillery strike? I don't know. It just got this collective unconscious thing going. Well, I had it. I had it actually. Interestingly enough, before you get too far into that. Well, we're into it. 
I had a I had an interesting dream once, and it was, you know, I used to be more into the conspiracy and UFO stuff. I'm sure you can't tell, <clears throat> but at some point I started to drift toward the esoteric stuff because I actually find it to be more rewarding, you know, researching things and trying to understand the esoteric nature <coughs> of existence in the world. And I don't know, I just, I find it more, <clears throat> more fulfilling than endlessly going around in circles about the secret space program or who killed Kennedy. Right. And when Alan was on, he talked about the secret chiefs and one day I kind of, I was like, okay, you know, I've been, I've been studying this stuff. I self, cause I don't, I don't like some of the magic organizations. I don't like how they operate and the people that run them. <clears throat> so I found one that was, it was like the free university, right? You just show up and do it. So I did that and I worked my way all the way up to Magus. The Magus degree. Yeah, we had no grades at the free year. Right. And, and um, you know, I like the free, free universities and open universities. And and so there was a kind of one for, for magic and esoterics. And I worked my there, way. There, yeah, there there is. Yeah, there, were a lo- uh, there were a bunch. Of course, you look at a course catalog, man. And, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, they would have tantric yoga sex on LSD. Well, and, <laughs> and by, by this time, you know, I had... I the had, Doors of Consciousness, uh, 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 Richard Alpert. Oh, sure. Uh, Vic Lovell. Well, uh, just a who's who. By this point, I had I had ta- gotten a number of degrees from ULC, which their classes are actually really good, surprisingly. You know, the degrees are... They're real, you know, but they're not accredited. So it's not like I'm putting it on my resume, but I was more just interested in the topic. So I have a number, I had done a number of degrees in that. I had done all kinds of training in alchemy and Egyptian magic and whatever. And and then I had, I had done this kind of open, open university kind of thing for magic and I had achieved the Magus level. And I'm, and I, I'm trying to explain how I did it. So I, I kind of was just sitting around one day and I was like, you know, Secret Chiefs, show me something. Because up until that point, it had all been theoretical that I had never, I mean, I had done things, but not significant things. And I was like, show me. And uh, I had oddly figured out that, you know, everybody has a quote unquote archangel, right? That, that you're associated with somehow. And I, oddly, I found mine through the, the tarot, um, but mine is Heniel. And so, <clears throat> so I'm just kind of, I'm a, I was a little uh, inebriated at the time and I'm just like, show me something, you know, I, I've done all this work. I've been introspective. I've thought about it. I've explored it. Show me something. Come on, Hanny L. Show me something. So I fall asleep. And I have this dream that I'm in a, a massive library. And that there's a, a woman in a, it's like a, a gray, dark gray cloak with maroon thread. So the stitching is all maroon. And she's walking me down through this library. And it's just endless. 
and there were people working on things at tables. And so then I woke up and I'm like, oh, well, that was interesting. And so I fell back asleep. And the minute I fell back asleep, I went right in, right back into it. And at that point, I realized where I was. I was within the Akashic record. All right, there you are. Yeah. Everyone's sitting around keeping records, huh? I don't remember what the point of me telling you that story was, but... Well, you know, like, uh, sorry, <laughs> in the free year, I took mostly, well, English, a lot of... Hey, I... I took uh, classes from Ray Bradbury and Raymond Carver, and that's crazy. Uh, it is crazy, and uh, but I did get into uh, so I was Commedia dell'arte, you know, and uh, it leads you into a whole different uh, place. It was acting out the myths or performance art or a theater of the mind or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but it was to reframe and rewrite your scripts, be able to write your scripts. Well, when, when I came back from that experience, I realized that, that reality is malleable. Because in that moment, right, it was as real as me talking to you right now. This plastic desk, it was absolutely real. And I woke up. I went, fell asleep, went right back into it, woke up, fell asleep, went right back. I did it three times. And I think the point of that was, you see, I'm not going away. This is, this is real. Like, you're really here. And so uh, what about my dream about hanging out uh, in front of the gates of hell? Well, that's because I watched Hellboy. It's probably digesting the I had, film. I had a dream yeah, like that. Uh, you know, my image is like the house is bigger on the inside than on the outside. Like the TARDIS. And like the TARDIS. And you go in there, and it's like kind of the absent-minded wizard, and there's books everywhere. But there, it seems to be no organization to it whatsoever. The guy's sitting on stacks of books. Oh, it's like that Burgess Meredith uh, thing in the Twilight Zone. Uh, it was there. Was there so, so I must have seen that. And uh, what kind of my point is is we tell stories to one another. Right. We hear stories. We're telling stories right now. And it, it creates our perceptions. It right. uh, create and has us act uh, on, on those. We create stories. We're storytellers. That's how we perceive life. That's how we act life. We act like in a script. Right. And we're constantly being fed um, all these different um, stories to live by. Sure. Uh, yeah, analogy and, and stories, you know, that's how we're taught. That's how we're enculturated. Right. With, with stories, whether they're nursery rhymes or whatever they are. But uh, the thing is, is like these evil forces can come in. Yeah, I know. And uh, whether for, uh, uh, I don't know what it is for. And they tell these, um, uh, like they'll create these massive world events um, to create power. And, um, uh, but I think we should work on a local level. And um, well, change, change your immediacy first. Change your local world first. And then, then it will, it's like catching fire. It'll catch fire and spread. Okay, back to that. 
No, we're talking about it. We make ourselves for the stories we tell, hear, learn, and create. It's, it's, it's our remembered past, our perceived present, our anticipated future. And I give lots of examples. So I'm talking about these rites and rituals that we use to reinforce our identities or our... Um, uh, so we got the Motherlode Parade. Right. And uh, for people that don't know, Tuolumne County, sheriff posses on horses. Oh, yes. Uh, parades and mothers. It's always held on Mother's Day. And that's our um, right and ritual to reinforce our identity. But see, where things can go wrong and I'm just talking on a local level because I'm a local kind of folklorist kind of guy. You absolutely But are. I live in Jamestown. And it was named after this guy, cat named Colonel James, okay? Okay. So this was just I a, didn't know that, by the way. Well, it's just a miner's camp. Well, actually, there was two little towns at one time because uh, they wanted... The, the guy's name was George. Okay. All right? So, uh, so he's, uh, his last name, George James. And there was a Georgetown, and, a and then there was a Jamestown. They what were a right, dink. Uh, right next to each other. No, because this guy moved in. He put himself off. I'm, I'm a wealthy lawyer from San Francisco. Okay. And he had the most uh, well uh, accruciated tent. I mean, he had everything you could think of. He, he opened like a little store. Okay. All right? And he'd get everybody drunk. He had champagne. He had oysters. Oysters here? <laughs> yeah. I can't even get sushi here. <laughs> but uh, although, although, free plug, the best sushi here is the Twain Heart Market. <laughs> After that, Price Co. Okay, yeah. It's Sushi Tuesdays. Okay, Sushi Tuesdays. But, uh, and this guy, he was like this land speculator or mining. You know, he... He didn't actually work the mines, right? He just started like these companies and then he'd hire miners and he exploited the Native Americans terrible too uh, to work for him in the mines. Okay. So uh, um, he started like selling stocks and uh, speculating and uh, he says, we're gonna build this economy, build this great town and city and uh, um, everybody invested. So hold on. So can I tell you a funny synchronicity? Okay. So I believe it's today is the anniversary of when they convicted Bernie Madoff of that massive Ponzi scheme. Oh, yeah. So you're talking about this. I, it's the exact same kind of character. Yeah. You're talking about basically a gold rush here, Bernie Madoff. Yeah. And what ended up happening is... Uh, he stole money from everybody, stuck off, snuck off in the middle of the night. Of course. And um, uh, made off, and no one ever saw him again. Okay? And uh, do you know to this day, Jamestown still kind of has a reputation of being, is there such a word as rascally? Yes. <laughs> You just made it. Remember, we're right. affecting our immediacy. All right. 
and it has that reputation. No, it you know it does. does. Yeah, when, it's kind when of. I, when I was looking for a house here, you know, because I'm I'm moving up here, and so I'm looking around, and we're we're going around, and we're looking around, and our and the real estate agent was like, "Oh, Jamestown, it's a it's kind of kind of sketchy." It's kind of rascally. <laughs> yeah, you think what? Uh, yeah, the guy is a speed lab across the street, you know, and uh, and Jamestown just has this reputation. I, I will tell you that they have some of the, the best restaurants around here. The service station is phenomenal, and I've never had any problems there, but it has a reputation of being rascally. Yeah, it this has this reputation. The reality of it it's is... because you're there, Dave. I lived there. I know. Right. And uh, so that's, and then you say, well, that's like this colorful, romantic story, you know, that, but it it kind of becomes integrated into our identity as a community. It does. So here's an alternate story. So there was a cat that was bumping around about that same time, and his life was a continual community service. Uh, he added a great, he was a great orator and, um, uh, Okay. You're talking about yourself, Dave. No, I'm not talking about <laughs> myself. I'm talking about the qualities of this guy that became right. a well-respected community leader that worked tirelessly for, uh, his constituents and that he was inspiring to others. And you never hear a thing about him. No. Okay, this cat's name was Tom Williams. He was born about 1838. And he was born right here, what now is called Jamestown. It was called uh, Chinko Chanka, the little village or something. Okay. Okay, now he started off as the chief's fisherman. Okay. They had an official fisherman. Then he became like town speaker. Um, and there was two jobs that you'd have. Is one is you, would, um, you were like the representative, an ambassador, a diplomat. You would go like to the, the town, other like little the, towns the and town villages. Like yeah, town he crier. was the town crier, you're okay. right. But then he also had the job of going to the other villages uh, to let he worked under this guy George Anderson, Chief George Anderson, okay. for like 20 years. And I'm talking about the 1830s and the 1840s, 50s when all that changes right. is going on. The invasion, the uh, colonizers, all came in. Okay, and yeah, this guy is an indigenous dude, Miwok right. guy, and it, uh, but. So he went from being the town choir to the village speaker, and then he eventually became chief. Okay. And then his last and most important job before he retired was uh, he became uh, untembe. It's a um, the storyteller. Oh wow! And he named the different roundhouses there were still left because this is a time of great upheaval. And, Destruction, uh, chaos. Yeah. Uh, right. And so he's trying to hold everybody together, right? And so what he would do is go to these each roundhouse. And these stories, when, they're, when he's telling the myth, 
Right. This uh, a story could last all night. Oh yeah. And uh, I, not I only that, I know that for a fact. And then you hear the same story year after year, actually, and everybody knows the story, um, and the little kids are going to grow up because there are songs and dances that go with these stories. Right, it's something that it's it's this immersive experience. It really is call and response, especially and, uh, especially when done inside the roundhouse. It really is quite <clears throat> quite an experience. But they have like the master storyteller dude that's just really got this thing down, right? I mean, it's like right. Uh, he knows how to tell a story. He's like the. Uh, uh, what is the collar and the square dance, you know? Right. Uh, he's, he's got it. And so they're creating, or what they're doing is maintaining, there's the rites and rituals to maintain the myths. And that is the culture, because it's all constructed. Sure. And uh, so uh, that was his most important job. And you know when he's listed in the Jamestown census, uh -huh. Tom Williams says woodcutter. <laughs> That's horrible. And so here's this man, this upstanding citizen. Oh, and then uh, when those anthropologists or whatever, the, those guys, right. ethno- Ethnographers. Uh, yeah. yeah uh, I studied that. Gifford and Kobler, right. whatever those guys' names were. Krober. Yeah, they depended on him. Well, of course, you always do. And uh, then they, uh, so when, but when you read the introductions to their books, it goes on and on about them, the scientists. Yeah, but not about him. And then not about the guy who he got all the information from. But they taught him to work a wire recorder, so he'd record the different ceremonies and okay. speeches. And then these two ladies from UC Berkeley, I think it was, right. was trying to make a Miwok dictionary. Right. And they had to call him in. Yeah. And, um, I mean, this guy was like this important dude, right? Not like Colonel James that stole everybody's money and took yeah, off it, in the middle of the night. But it's always like that. You know, when you take the Rolling Stones, <laughs> they're very famous. And they've done concerts for decades. In fact, this year, their concert is sponsored by the AARP. That tells you how old they are, right? No, I've seen uh, uh, Mick Jagger shows off that he can still do his moves, yeah. Right. But there's only one concert anybody ever talks about, the one at Altamont. Oh, yeah, I was there. Well, then we should, we should talk because... There's actually, I have an interesting theory about uh, the thing at Altamont. But that's the only one that anybody ever talks about. They don't talk about them playing at the Palladium in London or, you know, whatever. They only talk about the one at Altamont. Well, because I, the guy died in Altamont. So, yeah, people died at Altamont. Yeah, so the only one. The only it was stuff, a mess. It was a mess. Although I was on LSD with some girl in a mud hole, a pond. But, but that's the only one they ever talk about. <laughs> yeah, on that little road to get in there, oh, man. There were so many cars, you just stopped in the middle of the road and but, walked but the they, rest of the way. They always only talk about, did you ever notice, this is interesting, did you ever notice that, that when 
somebody commits a crime when they report it on the news, they always say their full name with their middle name included. Oh, yeah, and then it's always the third, too, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. it's like they'll give their full name with their middle name, but they'll never do it if it's not a crime. There, there are these weird idiosyncrasies, and one of the one of them is, is that if you do good, nobody remembers. Look, when I was a kid, right, when the Challenger went up, I watched it explode live on TV because we were all watching it, you know, and and everybody thinks Challenger, it exploded. They can tell you where they were. I was in class. They rolled the TV in. We used the rabbit ears to watch it on like Channel Two, yeah, right. <laughs> But nobody remembers the, you know, the good stuff. They only they only talk about the bad stuff. They only for whatever reason they only choose to to discuss the negative. So this guy spends his entire life in community in service. In community service helping his people, recording their history, recording their language, saving because he probably knew the destruction yeah, that was coming. You know, there. I, I want to say it was the Quakaoodle or one of them, the hiata, one of the in the Pacific Northwest, and they knew. And this guy, he was a geographer, and a cartographer, and they had sent him there to to make maps of the Pacific Northwest, and he knew because he was a cartographer and a geographer, he knew what was coming, and so and he kind of fell in love with this indigenous group. They accepted him in. They taught him the language. He learned the history. He wrote a 14-volume set of everything that he could possibly write down about their culture. People come in. They destroy their culture. And now now they're using that 14-volume set to reconstruct their language, their myths, their processes. Because he knew. But that guy, if you weren't studying anthropology or Native American studies, you'd have no idea who that guy is. No. But uh, can you imagine what a different image Jamestown would have oh, yeah. if sure. they uh, glorified that guy instead? Oh, I think they should. So my point is, is you change the stories that we live by and you change the culture itself. No, that's absolutely true. So you know, stories influence how we think, talk, and act. And that's magic. It is. That is magic. You know, I've argued to people for many years that, you know, that, that these minor things that you do, they're alchemical in nature. Because they're, you know, everybody thinks of alchemy. They think of turning base metals into gold, chemistry, right? You know, people in, in basements with, with beakers. Oh, know, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right? Try to turn lead into gold. Turn lead into gold. But the reality is, and the Philosopher's Stone and all that stuff, the, the, uh, the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, the reality is, is that, I don't know, maybe there is a guy who can turn base metals into gold. I've never met him. But true alchemy is spiritual alchemy. And you do it every day. You just don't realize it. That's, that's exactly right. So there's a uh, Kabbalah uh, thing. It's called Tinkan. It's uh, not, you take the, uh, the, the world around you, the objects, like nothing is either good or bad in, in itself. It's how you use a thing. So everything that you do is uh, turning the teshuva, the uh, 
uh, elevating right. the things that uh, you use, elevating others, elevating, uh, like I think, the, uh, the proper use of the medium of radio. Not to sell people things. No. But see, you can use that same Madison Avenue mindset and using it to build a better community. Absolutely. Uh, and, but it's, you know, it, it's like, let's say that you're a chef. The act of making people, they're, they're paying you for it, but, but the act of making these dinners... You're making these dinners for people who are going to your expensive restaurant and innately you're affecting their lives in a positive way because the spiritual energy that exists in that restaurant, in that moment, right? They're going there for these essential moments of their lives, birthdays, marriages, you know, maybe maybe they just got divorced and they're sad and their friend is taking them out for a really nice dinner to just kind of help them kind of boost their spirits. The food produced by those cooks and chefs is essential in that, in that action, in that moment. So they are spiritual alchemists. Even, you know, I used to go to Oregon a lot and it's like, you know, the guy pumps your gas to a California and well to pretty much everybody else in the United States you go to Oregon, somebody's, oh, I got to pump your gas for you. It's like, whoa, hold on a minute. You know, the world's gone kind of <laughs> cattywampus here. What, what is this? But if you think about it, that guy filling the fuel in your car, he is a spiritual alchemist because the act of filling my gas tank so I can continue my road trip is having an essential effect on my life. And him filling my tank is a positive part of that. Hey, you know, uh, the Baal Shem Tov, he is in the Hasidic lore. He is the master of the good name. This guy is like the enlightened dude, right? Yeah. I mean, even his name. And you know what he did for a living? No. He was a bartender. There you go. An innkeeper. And there was these uh, two rabbis, and they're watching the... Uh, the master of the good name, and he's serving food and serving the drinks and stuff, and uh, all smiling and greeting everybody. And uh, the one rabbi says, goes, look at him, man. Uh, he's making money hand over fist, and uh, uh, look at he's really happy about that. Right. And then the other rabbi goes, <laughs> looks at the other ones, goes, man, you're missing the point altogether. He's bringing joy and yes. happiness uh, to all these people's lives. And that's why he's like the jolly, uh, enlightened one. He's like the little wizard in the movie Wizards. Uh, when, I, when I was a little kid, I grew up in Italy. Was, you, you know, you, the holidays are coming. I grew up in Italy. <clears throat> and, you know, I, we lived off base. You know, we were surrounded by the culture. There's a story there that every year, right, you put your shoes outside the front door. And when you wake up in the morning, they're filled with candy. And, you know, Santa Claus is one thing, but then there's... There's Papa Noel. There's Ep Epifana. Oh, is that what he's so, in Italy? No, no. It's, it's separate. Oh. No, there's, there's Papa Noel. You get your Christmas tree and all that. But then there's Epifana. 
Epifana is the Christmas witch. And basically what had happened was is that Epifana had a child, had a son. And her son died very tragically, and she was very sad. And so she took her her uh, horse cart and filled it up with candy and took that that sadness and transmuted it into joy by bringing happiness to all the, all the children of the world by giving them candy. No toys, no T-shirts, no socks, only candy. And so, you know... Santa Claus would come and deliver your gifts, but Epifana would bring you candy. Uh, and the candy to rot your teeth because it's, it's the it's evil fun. witch. <laughs> it's fun. No, she was the good witch. And and so and the act and that action of filling and remember, the amount of candy you got was proportional to your shoe size. So as you grew up, you got more. Wow. Right, because your shoe's bigger. She's got to fill it. Boy, as you grow up, well, I don't know. I'm thinking Hanukkah guilt. <laughs> <laughs> I love guilt. Anyway, but the thing was is that she took the pain and the suffering of her child dying and transmuted that alchemically into the ha- spreading love and happiness and joy to children, not to adults, only children. That's yeah. spiritual alchemy. That's exactly what it is. It's like you. You're doing spiritual alchemy every time you come on here, exploring life's little mysteries, you know, bringing happiness, I hope, to people. Well, I'm on, uh, this is just my little sideline. Oh, yeah, this is your side hustle. Uh, I'm just do regular radio most of the rest of the week. Right, but but you're bringing happiness. You're bringing the community together over the airwaves. That's right, but that's spiritual alchemy. That is in and of itself. And I'm using frequencies and resonances, and uh, we should do a show. All these mad scientist things. There's there's a lady here that does the sound bathing. I should contact her, get her on. Oh yeah, no, uh, you just bring in that Unity Church people, man. Uh, They do all of that. We'll get somebody on. Um. Yeah, it's they start off the show, yeah, with the uh, well. The way they do it is they surround you with these uh, yeah, the bowls. bowls. Yeah, I have a bowl. Okay, so I'm thinking the same thing. You're all musical. I should bring it in so you can try. Well, because uh, you hit. You know, it says you want to start off on the right note. Exactly. It. it, That is true. No, it's true. Um. Uh, so what I usually do is just play all the notes, and then I know sooner or later I'll hit the right one. <laughs> You'll get there eventually. But uh, that's chaos magic. The uh, resonance—if you're hitting the right note and you create this resonant field—how do you think the walls came tumbling down in Jericho? They walked around it blowing on the shofars. They right. continually hit that right note. And uh, yeah, no, it's a sonic and the uh, Miwok uh, were talking about Tom Williams. Uh, his uncle was a shaman, right. and he did it by singing. Right. Well, the, I told you the story that, that the guy from the <clears throat> broadcaster from uh, Channel 2 that I sat next to going to um, uh, one of the conventions in Vegas. He was good friends with Carlos Santana. I told you the story. He believed... Carlos Santana believes that if he plays his guitar at the right frequency, that he can walk through a wall. And the guy said, one day he was over at Carlos, I don't know how else to explain it, but a compound. 
And I mean, just a really cool guy. You know, he had a bunch of carpenters there like putting on an addition or something. And he tells everybody it's break time. And so when Carlos Santana apparently says it's break time, you know what happens? What happens? Ice cream sandwiches for everybody. He has a huge freezer filled with ice cream sandwiches. Wow, that reminds me. Go ahead and finish your story, okay. and then I'm going to tell you mine. So, so he's handing out the ice cream sandwiches, and then people, people, are, oh, you got to play, you got to play. And he's like, okay. So he starts playing, and this guy Don Sanchez, he tells me, I'm watching him, and he's in the next room playing for the for the carpenters, right? And they're eating their ice cream sandwiches, and everybody's super happy. Because he wants good vibes for everybody. His house was full of good vibes, right? And he's like, I look away. I think I was throwing something away or something. The next thing I know, I look, and he's standing in front of me. And he's like, I didn't watch him go through the wall, but he had to go through a wall to get to stand in front of me. I just remember ice cream sandwiches. So I was in the hospital in intensive care, and I was in intensive care for weeks. I was on that floor. And uh, I, uh, they had me with, I don't know, some kind of life support. And I couldn't eat, so they would be feeding me through my arm. And then finally I tell the doctor, I go, man, I got to, you know, eat something. He says, you get enough nutrition. I go, you know that's not the same thing. Right. So I got to drink tea and eat ices. Okay. Oh, right on. And uh, finally the nurse, I was up and around. I was always up and around. It was like, uh, um, and and the nurse gave me the code to get into uh, the break room or whatever they called it. Oh, so you can get an icy. And I became the popsicle guy. And okay. uh, I delivered popsicles throughout that entire floor. And yeah, there was a guy that uh, they had just cut off his leg and it was all infected and stuff. And... I was the popsicle guy, and uh, I was there for like three weeks. Unfortunately, what happened one time is they uh, were doing a procedure on me, and they uh, instead of uh, they used the wrong stuff on me. Oh, okay. And to put me out, and when I finally came to, I was standing on the gurney with my arms in front of me, and uh, the wow. entire floor of all the staff was like around me and I finally came to and I said, oh well, I, I guess I'm not going to get patient of the week. <laughs> Actually, you might. <laughs> uh, I, I was more popular than the uh, lady that came around, a volunteer that played the harp. Yeah, I'm sure. If you were Popsicle Man, I'm sure you were. I told her when she came in to play for me, she goes, like, just I'm leave. just not quite ready yet to listen to the harp music. Uh, wait till I get my wings. <laughs> but you're totally right. I mean, there's a story where the um, uh, uh, you're broke on the car alongside. It says, you know the problem with Yahweh is he thinks he's God. You know, I mean, uh, you you look, I just, uh, you haven't heard the story, it says I just c- couldn't reach the Yahweh cat. But when a uh, person um, is in their fullness of love and joy, like your car breaks down, did Yahweh come and uh, help you out? No, it's these 
a man or a woman that stopped and helped you, right. and those are the angels. Yeah, they're in your the physical life. manifestation of it. That's right. That's exactly right. So when you start doing these mitzvahs, these good deeds, just to change it just a little bit, just to be able to use the things of life in that little twist to make right. it um, just right um, and to bring out the best in yourself and it, others. What is it they say in the Talmud to save one life is to save the entire universe? Yeah, but then that gets kind of, that is true. Yeah, the whole thing like the Kabbalah, the tree of life. Right. I mean, you can take it as as above, so below, because there's a lot of different ladders yeah, there. Yeah, this yeah, is Jacob ladder, but the truth of the matter is, is that's the structure right. of a makeup of a, of a man or a woman or your whole from your feet, Malkut. You know, you're you're grounded, way up to uh, Kether. You know, like out your head in the stars, your feet on the ground, your head in the stars, and everything in between. So it teaches you about uh, the relationships between wisdom and knowledge. Right. And um, so it's like a template uh, that, that you can use. Um, and that's cool too. But if you put it down to the basic everyday stuff, man, it's like just a, another self-help book <laughs> on, yeah, we the, on the newsstand. And it's a lot more simple than what people think. But you, are you going to use those principles? Uh, what are you going to use it for? Light or dark, you know? Sure. Well, let's, let's take a break there. All right. We've got two minutes till the top of the hour. So You're listening to? KDLP 103.5 FM Sonora. And streaming at? KD-LP.org. Okay. You always got to remind me. 103.5 FM, Sonora.
Captain Tiki Miola Phillips, I got Captain Dave right over here. And we're exploring another one of life's little mysteries. You know Actually, Go ahead, Dave. we're talking about uh, magic for fun and profit. Basic principles of magic, and it's just a simple proposition. It really is. Um, now, before you start, so I was thinking about something while we were hanging out taking our little break exploring life's little mysteries for 15 minutes so that last song that i played that's by a, a group called to say it's a band it's not a band exactly it's a group a group is more accurate but it's called Highlung, and they they s- sing ancient uh scandinavian and viking songs and they, they're, they tell you straight up that when you go to one of their concerts, right, that it, it is a magical event. That the, the music that they play is very specifically chosen to create a magical environment that's completely immersive, but also it has a point that they are doing a magical ritual during the entire concert or for a desired effect for a desired effect. And usually it's to like spread love and and peace in the world. And the, the rituals that they are carrying out while they are playing the music, right. Are geared toward sending out love and peace, which you don't think Vikings and love and peace, but in reality, you know, Vikings were pretty much just farmers. It's just like once a year, like, Hey, let's go raid some stuff. And, get some free money and whatever but most of the time they were just farmers and so i went to one of their concerts the last concert they they had and in the beginning when they were opening the concert right they actually brought some local native americans on the stage to perform a ritual opening and they sang the songs with the Native American groups. I think they were Ohlone or Coastal Miwok or Costano, one of them. I don't, I couldn't tell which one, 
But they were there. They opened the concert. They the group sang with them, did the the smudging with them, and they then they did the concert. And it is probably I've been to two you know, you were talking about like tones and music as a a ritual magical experience. That there are two that I two concerts I've gone to in my entire life of 48 years. There are only two that had that kind of effect on me. And when I left Heilung, I felt different. I felt happy. I felt euphoric. You're transformed. I was spiritual alchemy. I was transformed by their music by being in that concert. You know, that was the original conception of like the Trips Festival. Right. Back in 66 or whenever that was, is to create an immersive environment uh, that you attack all the senses. It's like a feng shui. It's a uh, it is, an environmental. Uh, High Lung was the second best concert <laughs> I've ever been to in my life. See, that is a magical ritual. That's, it was. That's what it is. That's, that's how you create it. So you, you want an effect. So first, you have to have you conceive. Oh, and the, the, the tones and the, the lighting. I mean, and they were performing rituals on the stage to the music. You know, they had the, they had the Valkyries and the ritual death of the Valkyrie. And, and the ritual death of the of soldiers, you know, warriors, and you know their their reemergence and their acceptance into Valhalla and the whole thing, it was all, you know, these are actual rituals that were performed. In fact, one of the craziest things that 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 group has ever done is that one of the oldest songs that was ever written down, I think, was it's Sumerian. And they translated it off of cuneiform. And they actually, Heilung actually took that translation and they sang it. They actually, because the music is there, the lyrics are there, everything is there. It's all translated. They actually sang it. They actually recreated the oldest song in all of humanity. And when they do their costumes that they wear, are accurate. They work with historians to ensure that everything is legit. Like the the clothes they wear, the way to do their hair, everything is consistent with what we know about the Viking people of that time, pre-Christian Vikings of of that period. Oh, for some, I, I thought you mentioned the Sumerians. Yeah, no, no. They sang a Sumerian song. Oh, okay. Which is that, you know, because everything else is all Viking. You know, uh, my wife's name is Summer Sumer. Yeah, you told me that. Uh, she is descendant from uh, the ancient I'll, uh, I'll find Sumerians. The, I'll find the song for you, but it, uh, it is literally the oldest song in all of humanity. See, so it's these props. You know, they say, really, a magician uh, don't, don't need a wand. It's these... Uh, environments that reinforce uh, your intention. Yeah, that's the, the argument of chaos magic versus ritual magic. Um, so, uh, so the props, so we used to do these crazy things, but we would live on this 
these, these archetypical levels, like we, we become the heroic, the heroes in our story. So we recreated the Odyssey using the raft uh, on San Francisco Creek, and uh, half the time we had to carry it from one little pond to the other, but it was epic. Well, yeah. that's that's Fitzcarraldo. <laughs> Have you ever seen Fitzcarraldo? Oh yeah, yeah. Herzog. The you know here's this crazy German who wants to bring opera to the Amazon. In order to make that movie legit, Werner Herzog actually made them drag that steamboat across an isthmus from from like the Orinoco River to the Amazon. And when he made a Geary, the Wrath of God. He made he made the actors actually pull that cannon up the side of a mountain because he wanted it. He was trying to he wanted the actors to be in an immersive space so that they became the people that they were representing in the film. So uh, magic. That's right. So uh, the props that you use. Um, and then the settings, the set and the settings, uh, stages, backdrops, uh, and we act out these stories and shape our identities. Uh, I had the keys to the uh, Prometheus Psychodrama Workshop, and man, it was set up. So it was like this all-cushioned pillow room, and uh, you had like an elevated place where you work the lights and the sounds. Right. And then uh, in the back room, there's like these trunks full of costumes. And you acted out the stories of your life. Are your perceived stories, are you reframing? Yeah, it's about reframing. Uh, the stories uh, uh, of, of your life. And so um, if you wanna practice magic, that's what you do. You have to be concerned so you can surround your house. Your house is like your altar. And you uh, have all the things that, that, bring, that are meaningful in your life, that, that gives your life meaning, that uh, moves your plot line along. Sure. Uh, and, uh, and it's uh, reinforcing it. And then so you do that on a personal level, but then you also do it on a collective community level and that, um, and you, uh, I, we've been talking about creating a uh, uh, this ritualist experience, and I'm talking on the level when I mentioned the uh, parade, the Motherload Parade. Right, right. It's the sheriff's Tuolumne County Sheriff's posses on horses. Um, Motherload Parade and Rodeo, and it, it, that reinforces. Uh, this grand rite and ritual that reinforces the identity of the community, right? You know, interesting thought about that. So one of the other kind of parades that we have here that's very famous is the, the Christmas parade, right? And, and it's, it's basically, it's not like floats, it's trucks, well, it's the fire engines. No, no, I was getting to that. So, being, the high school band. Being, being that, that we live in the forest, 
I mean, this is the foothills, but they're very, for being foothills, we're at a pretty good elevation for a foothill. Usually the foothills are a little lower to the ground. You know, we're up at 2,500 feet up here. And so we have a lot of trees. We have more. Well, we just, this is where you stop being flat and go up. Yeah, and it's vertical. It's fast. Because we go from uh, Chinese camps really flat. Right. And then you go all the way up to uh, over the pass, and there are pass. But because of that, one of the things about this place is that the firefighters in Cal Fire, you know, they're, they're. They're very, very respected here, and they, and they should be. I mean, they, these guys, you know, they're fighting fires in the worst terrain you can imagine. But I'll tell you, that parade is half fire trucks. It's every, you know, Department of Forestry, Cal, California Department of Forestry, the, the National Parks for, or National Park Firefighters, you know, the, I mean, it's Cal Fire, it's the local, I mean, it's, it's literally a parade of fire engines. So, uh, you know. And it's impressive. There for a few years, we were having these wildfires oh, yeah. every year. Every year. And I don't know exactly which one it was because we were over in Calaveras County and they had just put out this fire and we were going to do this concert for some something days. You know, these little mountain communities had the something right. days. And... Uh, it, it was like the USO. I felt like we were playing because everyone was in uniform. There were every kind of fire truck from all across the country there. Mm-hmm. And um, it's like the staging area. And I felt like on stage performing, it was, uh, I was in the USO. Um, you know, I'll tell you, just, and it's not magic. Well, it's magical in a way, I guess. But, Personally, I think Cal Fire, we have between the the National Park Service firefighters, the the California State Forestry firefighters and Cal Fire, I think we probably have some of the best firefighters in the world. Because the, the stuff I mean, when they're fighting these fires, they're the terrain is insane. The terrain is insane. It is, and that rhymes. Oh wait a minute, the uh who what uh the military has uh the facility up here. It's the uh, winter training. No, it's a. Uh, you're talking about mountain warfare. Oh, the mountain warfare. Yeah, that's uh, the Marine Corps mountain warfare facility. It's yeah. over in Bridgeport. Yeah. It's it's weird. You come off the pass, and it's just like this base. Yeah. It's funny though when you drive through the pass. Sometimes you see them up there. Like you'll be driving this windy one and a half lane road, and then suddenly like. There's just like Marines everywhere, and the helicopters, and yeah. Yeah, but one day I seen them coming in, and they're all in formation. I said, I wonder what uh, maneuvers they're running today well, I, up there. I talked to a guy who was a Marine, and he actually went to the mountain warfare training facility. He was in artillery, and he said that they he had a big howitzer. They had a bunch of big howitzers. And they brought him in using a helicopter and dropped them off on like the top of the mountain. Uh-huh. I've, I've seen some of that, but but again, you know, it's it's reinf- you know having all those fire engines, it reinforces, you know, something that is very important to all of us. Right, it's an identity, it's, it's an a ident- cultural it, yeah. thing, and they have their rituals and rites. This is uh, the, that they do. This is the only place that I've ever been or lived 
where when a fire engine is going down the road, everybody pulls over in both lanes. There's nobody trying to outrun it. Nobody trying to like get in right behind it. Everybody stops until that fire engine is way down the road. Wow. The entire, yeah. That isn't like that everywhere, huh? No. You know, one thing that uh, we had, uh, um, you know, you're a self-professed 14 yes. and you have all kind of esoteric um, statuses and of one sort or the other. I do. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a wandering bishop. And, and um, uh, <laughs> in me, I grew up, I, I guess it's because right at the time I grew up, and uh, I thought the alternative was the mainstream. So it was like I, I did all this stuff without a clue. I mean, with uh, the interest and stuff yeah, I had, they, it seemed, it felt like that. this is the mainstream. But that's in the 60s they were celebrating that. I grew up in the 80s when they were celebrating John DeLorean, yeah, a cokehead car maker. You know, every, every week we would tune into Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. You know, the one episode of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with Robin Leach and his champagne wishes and caviar dreams, the one that I remember, uh, the guy that they were profiling, the guy had like 10 yachts and it was worth like billions. He was an arms dealer. But they didn't talk about that. They talked about all the, all the mini malls and, and malls that he owned and all the houses he had. But in reality, the way he made all that money was that he was he was the go-between between American defense contractors and and weapons makers and the Saudis. See, but the media people, they are in the business of creating myths. Yeah, they created brands. a big myth about this guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, people that do control the media in a lot of ways, they're... They are the modern myth makers. It's not the storyteller around the fire as much anymore. It's how do how how does MK Ultra um, uh, do their disinformation, misinformation, and mind well, control now? It's through well, the different media. I forget the I forget the name of it, but there was a CIA program where they actually befriended journalists, and they would call the journalists and say, "Hey." Can you report on this story this way? I forget the name. Oh, of it. no, that, that is so common. You wouldn't believe oh, yeah. that. Oh, I believe it. And uh, also, they send out, they direct uh, the media in one direction, the, these dark powers that be, uh, and say, look over here so you don't look over there. Well, you know, it's, it's uh, funny. When, when the Ukraine war started, now, I don't want to get into politics. This is a... <laughs> Politic free zone. But it's just uh, dark magic. When when the Ukraine war started, the first thing I did is I said, okay, what else is going on? Because, I mean, I feel terrible for the Ukrainians and you know, that's, that's a tragedy and the things that are happening there are just abominable. But the first thing that popped into my head is, okay, they started, there's a war over here, so what's going on over here? Well, it's the same thing when they changed, uh, upgraded their... Uh, radar sensibilities and they started seeing things all over the place and it's the Chinese weather balloon they couldn't recover all those other things they shot down no it's it's you know in in, in ufology every time disclosure comes up oh we're going to get the truth this time it's like look they haven't told you the truth since the 40s why do you think they're going to tell you now every time every time we're going to talk about disclosing UFOs. 
I'm always like, okay, what else are they working on? Because that's not real. It's misdirection. Oh, what else are they working yeah. on? Yeah. If, if they're talking and about And then they hand it over to private industry. <clears throat> right, which uh, buries it. Right, it's just, it's, it's Well, you horrible. know, so you know the SR-71, the spy plane, yeah. the Blackbird, super yeah. fast? The original project was called the A-12 ox cart. And the A-12 was actually bigger than the SR-71, and it was silver. It wasn't painted black. It was painted silver. And so when they were testing the A-12, right, people would see this silver thing shoot across the sky because it's fast. I mean, you know, publicly they'll admit that it goes like Mach 3, okay? But in reality, it goes far faster. And so this silver thing shoots across the sky, and everybody's like, oh, my God, it's a UFO. Oh, my God, it's a UFO, Right. And so the CIA was like, that's great. We love that. So they, they would actually put out stories about how these, these sightings that were the A A-12 were actually UFOs. And it got to the point where the Soviets were sending in uh, KGB officers to infiltrate UFO groups thinking that if they go out to a Skywatch, they're going to see an A-12. So then the CIA... It, CIA comes into the UFO groups to monitor the KGB and to figure out which ones are part of Section R, the Residentura, which were their deep cover moles. And so the CIA is now going into UFO groups to watch the KGB. The KGB is going into the UFO groups to watch the A-12. Yeah, well. <laughs> That's why I said every time they talk about disclosure, I'm like, okay, well, what else is going on? Because this disclosure thing is not... It's a fan. All that stuff in Congress, you know, they, they do all that stuff in Congress. What's the first thing they do when the budget rolls around? They chop all the budget funding for their UAP program. Everybody's like, oh, they've got an actual Pentagon UAP program. First thing they did is they stopped calling them UFOs. Now they're UAPs, right? Right. This, so everybody gets on that band. Oh, UAPs, 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 right? And, oh, look, Congress is having congressional hearings. And that's... The congressmen are human. They, I mean, one of the first things that Clinton did is he said, okay, what happened at Roswell? And they said, you don't want to know. And so he dropped it. Obama comes in. He says, I want to know about Area 51. They said, you can't go there. He says, okay. And he drops it. So they, they do all these congressional hearings, you know, because everybody at this point believes in UFOs. It's not, it's not like it's just you and me cracked out in the middle of the night, having acid trips. Everybody believes this stuff. So then... They go, oh, we're going to react now. NASA's got a program. The CIA admits they've got a program. The DOD has a program. And what's the first thing they, they cut when they do the budget? Those programs. So the program exists. It's, it's blue book all over again. U.S. Air Force. Oh, we're going to explore UFOs. We're going to figure it all out. And what is the first thing they do? They gutted the funding. So it's two guys and a typewriter. Two guys, a secretary, and a typewriter. Right, I remember after they announced that nobody could find a website because there wasn't one. That's right. <laughs> and then they finally built one, and it didn't work. Yeah. Well, at least they got a cover page. So they got a landing cover. page. Ooh. Okay, back to your magic. No, story. we're talking exactly what it's about. That's, so that's using those magical principles uh, and putting out this uh, dark disinformation. Yeah, and, it, and you know what's funny is that, that, you know, you were talking about magic. One of the things that I, I'm going to e email him and see if I can get him to come on. 
But Nick Redfern wrote an insane book about these people called the Collins Elite. So on one hand, everybody dismisses it. Magic isn't real. Magic isn't real. Yeah, but the Collins Elite was a DOD-funded operation, which was trying to trying to do magic and open portals to places. And, you know, so they, on one hand, and, and the KGB was well known for their psychic research and, and their occult research as well. So they believe in it. Yeah, but I guess I'm I uh, my interest more is in practical magic, how to uh, and uplift the yes. uh, how to fight that the dark magic. The how to fight the dark magic, and you ha- and it's the same tools, but they're done like in the light, or uh, yes. uh, they're not done. Well, for the intention. The intention. It's yeah, all in the, it's intention. All in the intention. It really is. Yeah, I mean the the main difference between. The Black Lodge and and the more positive lodges and positive magical organizations is about intention. You know, I as a side hustle, I sell magically activated railroad spikes. It's a it's a kind of folk magic where you pound them in the, you know, you put them in the corners of your house. You pound them in the corners of your property. It'll protect your house. And one of the things that I always put in there is <clears throat> I always put in. Uh, sheets of seed paper and seed paper is paper with seeds for flowers embedded within the paper itself. Oh yeah. I used to make that stuff. Yeah. So I always include one and I tell the people, Hey, write your intention, you know, on the seed paper and then bury it in the ground. And then your intention will blossom flowers. Yeah. And and those, that is the props that you use to reinforce. Exactly. Uh, uh, that intention, and the and that is the prop that you use to manifest manifest the, the reality that you want to live in. You know that the secret worldwide bestseller, right? And it really comes down to to intention and manifestation. You can skip reading the book. You don't need to watch the video. It's about intention and manifestation. You manifest the world that you live in. And that manifestation is driven by your intention, your intent on how you want to live, then you manifest the world that you intend to live in. That's, that is, that's the, I, I spent an hour trying to get there and you just summed it up right there. But that's exactly uh, it. Yeah, it's true. You manifest your own reality. <coughs> you know, I interviewed these people a long time ago. I had a, <clears throat> at a podcast called the paranoia podcast. And I interviewed these people and they were, they were big proponents of ayahuasca and they somehow got the Egyptian government to let them spend the night inside the great pyramid. And they used ayahuasca inside the great pyramid. And the trip that they describe is, is insane that they had, they floated out. I mean, obviously, it's a hallucinogen. They had floated out of the, into the sky, and then they had, they had, appear in front of like a control panel so that they could like tweak reality, you know. And it was like a simulation, all this stuff. The reality is, is that the ayahuasca opened their mind, much like how you explain the LSD. The ayahuasca opened their mind, and it's not that a literal control panel appeared that they could tweak. 
they manifested the control panel to tweak their own reality. Because when they were done tweaking that reality, that's not the reality that I live in. I have my own control panel. And I think that's what they, I think that's what they missed when that took place was that the control panel was for their reality and the reality of the people. They're very famous. So the reality of the people that follow them, those people have decided to join them in their reality and fuse their realities together. And so when they're tweaking the knobs and flicking the switches on the con- their inter- floating enterprise control panel, they're tweaking their reality and the, the child realities of their follow- the people that follow them who have linked their reality to these people. Well, we have all these realities coming at us from all different directions, really. It's true. That's the whole purpose. Uh, um, so, you, you know, we have, uh, I don't know what you call it, the currents. Uh, you can call it that. And then we have the social constructs of others. Right. Um, that's how come it's best for, I think, uh, and it, it is like smaller groups of people, more local. Right. You know, we live a little more isolated, so maybe that's why we seem to have a, more of a personality. But then you can get a busy, San Francisco has uh, their has image personality. Yeah. Yeah. Just when I lived in the East Bay, it was like a megalopolis. It was like one big continuous. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's what what drove me insane about living in the East Bay was the the megalop the sprawl, you know. And every year there'd be less and less trees and more and more people. And I think, you know, in the valley that I lived in, I think there were 1.6 million people lived in that valley. The town I lived in had 35,000 people. And that town, it was considered small. And the downtown was roughly, was a little smaller actually than, than Sonora. So you said you, you were going to have to go to Modesto. And how many people live in that city? Oh, I have no idea. I mean, like, like 300,000 or something. Yeah, so you know, I find the more time I spend here, the more and more I dread going into areas with high populations because it's like I mean I I like the isolation of it so when I go into large population centers it's like it's it's suffocating because and I think one of the reasons going to your practical magic I think one of the reasons is is because I'm being buffeted by the the spirit the s the etheric impact of all these people and they're so tightly concentrated that the amount of etheric energy that's being generated and the chaos, some people have chaos, some people are calm. It's just the way the world is. But you're being constantly buffeted by all this etheric energy. It's much more peaceful with less people. I think the size of, of Sonora is actually a really good size. Uh, another, uh, and I totally agree with that, but another thing that you would have to consider is that it ends up everyone dreams the same dream. You turn on and it's John Tesh, Intelligence for Your Life, on the radio. Everybody dreams the same dream. Everybody drives the same, like, five cars. And uh, They paint their houses the same color. um, And so then there's... It bleeds together. Yeah, and then there is 
um, you uh, s you lose a sense of identity. You lose connection the, to place. Uh, well, connection to self. I mean, you you lose the uniqueness because you're constantly surrounded by everybody. No joke. I mean, you go to the East Bay, you go to San Francisco, they all look the same. They talk about the same things. They drive the same kind of cars. Their houses all look the same. They manicure their lawns in the same way. They do the same thing on weekends. But there's such a world of possibilities that you can dream your own dream. Yeah, but when that happens, it's like you're you're fighting the current. That's I think that's the best explanation is that for me at least when I was there, because, you know, I grew up there. I mean, I, I moved to the... Well, it was rural when I grew up there. But when, every time I come back... I came there. Yeah, every time it, it's less and less. Well, you know, when I'd ride my I'd ride my bikes past apple orchards and, and then they ripped them out and put in houses. You know, we had just in the time that I lived in Martinez, like we had a, you know, we had a, a big public golf course. It was super cheap and had a really cheesy little restaurant and... They tore it all down and put in even more houses. More and more, they they were taking the lots of a normal house, you know, tearing down the house and putting two houses on it. But that etherically, spiritually, it all bleeds together because you're all so tightly confined. And the things, the things that that bring peace, like trees and water and. You know, the Walnut Creek is named after Walnut Creek. Well, you know what? I, they got rid of the creek. I talked to these two ladies. They used to say they they you go down into Walnut Creek, and they used to, when they were kids, on horseback. Right. They would ride as fast as they could, and whoever got to the bottom where the little town was, they had to buy the other one a soda. At the little market there. Yeah. No, it's true. And, you know, we had a... There was walnut trees. Hey, we have a place called Timber Hill. They cut down all the timber. Right. They shaved the hill, yeah. and all that's left is Timber Hill. I will say, though, you go to Quail Hollow, there are still quail. Uh, but, but I think, you know, when you get into these, you go to L.A., Paris, London... <clears throat> any of these places there's just so many people the population density is so high that you kind of lose touch with the natural world because you know it's it's funny and for anybody listening this, you know try it sometime when you're when you're pissed off go don't hug a tree but go touch a tree take your shoes off and put your feet in the ground and touch a tree it is surprisingly calming it will calm you right down no joke. Like literally take your shoes off, put your feet in the dirt and touch touch the tree. It just takes it takes the stress. It like it's like a vacuum cleaner. It takes the stress right out of you. I always tell people, you know, they have a lot of stress in their lives, a lot of anxiety, feeling kind of crazy. The world's gone kind of crazy. Take your shoes off, put your feet in the dirt and just touch the tree. Let the tree heal you. Let the tree make you feel better, because well, it will. Well, you know, I always thought my yard was an extension of my living space. It is my living space. And uh, it is where I go to commune with nature. Yeah, and I think one of the, one of the tragedies of, of, of megapolises 
you know, in these mega cities like LA and these in Paris and, you know, Paris is so big that they have a commuter train that runs underground. It's literally like a locomotive. Like it's a full on like Amtrak locomotive that runs in these tunnels under the city. And then they have a subway on top of it. And it's like, they're, they have trees and parks in Europe. They're much better about having trees and parks than we are. But it's still, it's just sprawling. And it's like you lose touch. I think <clears throat> at some level when you're losing touch with the earth and you're losing touch with nature, you're, you're, reali- you're losing touch with the, your essential reality. And that's when your reality is etherically impacted by all the people that surround you because everybody's so tight together. It creates groupthink and this this notion of the mass. And the mass becomes one organism. They, th- I'm no joke. Like they drive the same cars, they wear the same clothes, they listen to the same music. You know, it's all the same. There's no uniqueness. And the people that are unique, the artists and the musicians and the poets. They move up here. They leave. (laughs) Well, because A, they can't afford it, and B, they're stifled by it. The things that make them creative. I think we probably have more artists per capita. I guarantee uh, it. I guarantee it because, you know, the, the environment drives the art. And it's like when you're in this homogenous you know, over complex manufactured reality that exists in all places of high population density, that spark, that creative spark is pushed down. So uh, I, I guess uh, I'm just the age that uh, uh, magic to me is just a small town vibe but it uh, is. where people can thrive. But it is. It, it's a small town vibe where people are individuals there's a lot of uniqueness. I mean, when you walk down the street of Sonora, you meet the most interesting, unique people. You really do. And it's, it's magic. It really is magical. You know, I was, I. So I, you got enough room to change your mind. Yes. Living up here. You know, it's funny. I was, I, I went out toward, uh, oh, what's, what's that town called? Um, it's by the Merced River. Um, well, anyway, I, I was coming back past the, the houseboat. Mart, and I get down to where the where the uh, the wood processing plant is over off 108, and so I'm driving up 108 to get home, and and I'm I'm thinking, you know, I can take the back road and it's faster. I might see a deer or whatever. But I tonight I was like, you know what? I'm going to drive through downtown Sonora because I just I don't know. I just want to see the lights because the lights are pretty and all the windows are done up for Christmas and. It was, it was just very magical. Practical magic. Practical magic. So it's a creation of personal myths Yes. Uh, that creates our identity and actually manifests the world that we live in. Hey, do you ever seen that George Clooney movie? It's like Future Land or something. Tomorrowland. Tomorrowland. Yeah. And... And they were feeding off uh, the, uh, as people's anxieties um, went up, uh, the, um, the cre- they're creating the situation right. that they most dreaded. 
Well, that's that's like Forbidden Planet. You know, the, that's right. The krill, you know, reach such a height of technological accomplishment that their final act as a species was to attempt to remove the id. And so they suck the id out of every krill. The problem was, is that they all combined into the super id. And now you had the id monster and it killed off the entire species. (laughs) That's basically the movie. That was the uh, premiere. Uh, No, it was, yes, it was uh, the... uh, it was this old myth retold. Yeah. Um, the id monster. Uh, the, uh, and that was the premiere of Robbie the Robots. First that time was, on first screen. Time. Yep. And the BBs, the, the BBs did the music. Um, using, I forget what it's called, but that instrument. Where you don't touch us, a theremin? A theremin. Yeah, all the music is a theremin. What other movie famous? I think it was the original... Um, Katu Nanu. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mork um, and Mindy? No. Uh, oh, Klaatu Verata Nikta. Yeah. <laughs> the day the earth stood still. Yes. Do you remember? <laughs> the guy says, all you got to do is go and say the magic words, man, and everything will happen for you, right? And so he's... He's got all these nether Oh, you're talking, you're talking about Ar- <laughs> Army of Darkness. I'm actually... Not to Verata Necktie. <laughs> Bruce Campbell, man. I love that guy. Have he you ever seen so Bubba funny. Hotep? You need to watch Bubba Hotep. Bubba, Another Ho- one. Bubba Hotep. Uh, was Briscoe County Jr. Oh, yeah. Science fiction western. Uh, For sure. No. It was, yeah, it was great. And then all the evil deads, you know. Oh, yeah, they were no, funny. The Army of Darkness. Yeah, Klaatu. They Rob had the, uh, since, and, and yeah, the uh, the dad are doing Three Stooges routines. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, if you ever watch <laughs> Evil Dead 2, he's, he's talking about, like, what happened. He's like, <clears throat> the, my I watched like, all of those on videotape a long time VHS, ago. VHS, man. My girlfriend got infected by demons. She bit my hand. It got infected, so I lopped it off with a chainsaw. That's right. Yeah, he fitted the chainsaw on his hand. Yeah. Boy, mess to live by. <laughs> yeah, no Joseph Campbell here, man. Bruce Campbell all the way. Joseph Campbell, Bruce Campbell, whatever. <coughs> Actually, you know, in the, in the waning minutes of our show, there is something that I would like to recommend that you watch. Okay. Because you were pointing something out earlier. There's a show that originally premiered, I think, in 1977, and he brought it back two other times as shorter. In 77, he had, like, a lot of episodes, but he brought back, like, miniseries in the 80s and the 90s. And now he has he has a new one that's on Curiosity Stream. If anybody subscribes to that, you need to watch Connections with James Burke. Okay, Connections In just fa- can't make no. That's Rolling Stones again. Yeah, going back but to that. You can probably find it on YouTube. You want the '70s one? There, there's one episode where he's talking about how rocket the connections that led to the Saturn V being built, right? And he literally, I don't know how he did it but he literally timed it perfectly so that he's walking down this path and then he starts talking about the Saturn V rocket then he stops and in the background you can see one one of the Apollo missions firing off. 
Huh. It's insane. But he, the the episode I remember the best is that he's walking. He's walking through I think Oxford, Oxford University, and um, he's talking about like I don't know cockroaches or something, and he's carrying a briefcase, and he says something to the effect of now we're going to figure out how you go from a cockroach to this. And he says something like, I bet you can't guess what's in this briefcase. And you're obviously like, uh. and he turns the briefcase around and he opens it up. He's like, it's a nuclear bomb. And then he closes it and he throws it. And then you see a nuclear detonation. It, you will love that show because it's all about the interconnectedness of everything. How everything <laughs> That's is true. everything is and that is the the etheric the etheric you know current I mean that's what we've just spent two hours talking about is that etheric current practical magic spiritual alchemy so uh you uh i you had it down is your intention and your manifestation is uh, your is. intention is the re- manifestation is a result of your intention. And you can use all the props and settings, uh, uh, what they call uh, reparations. Uh, in the Western biblical thing, everything's in a fallen state. Right. And anytime you use something, you uplift it, right. if you're using it for the uplifting. Um, and, and use some correspondence, man. Write it down. Write it, go on Amazon or Etsy, or whatever you use, eBay, buy some seeded paper, write your intention on the paper, put all of your intention and thought on the, on the, write it down, and then bury it, and you know how you'll know that it's working, is because it will grow flowers. So everything you do is a magical act. In some capacity, uh, it is. Because you are in being transformative you're transforming well it's like i explained to somebody once they they were hair they're a hairstylist and i said you know the act of styling somebody's hair is spiritual alchemy because they go in with their hair being one way they come out it, it can be radically different and that just the simple act of cutting your hair can be a life-changing experience oh yeah it reminds me of an old zen saying Okay. Even the severed branch grows again, and the sulken moon arises. Wise men who ponder this are not troubled by a bad haircut. There you go. <laughs> you know what? That's a great way to end the show, actually. <laughs> well, it's been another thrilling two hours of the Enigma Hour with me, Captain Tiki, Olaf Phillips, and uh, Captain Dave reporting for duty. Exploring another one of life's little mysteries. Hey, don't forget you can you can email us at Olav O L A V at weirdtwallamy.com or Dave Dave at weirdtwallamy.com. I've got the templates working now, so I am actively working on fixing up the website. It's coming soon. Shouldn't be too much longer now. Yeah, that well, it's actually I, I know we got the artwork and the introduction yep. about. Right, we you gotta, sent that to me. I got to put it uh, in there. Yeah, and then we'll start hitting on the story. Once we get that structure in, yep, then we'll right. start posting stories. Stories, I have it broken down. So there's stories, there's places, there's events. Then it's going to be you know UFOs and hauntings and 14 stuff and Bigfoot and cryptids. We so got it all. We got sunken cities. 
We have secret giants, societies. Giants. Uh, you just got to know where to look. That's right. Exploring. And, uh, that's some, right. And so we're music. busy. Uh, not, uh, Tabulating and accounting. Okay. And then you'll be able to get to the radio show from there too. So thank you very much for listening over here on KADLP 103.5 FM Sonora. And uh, I guess we'll see you next week. Happy uh, holiday. Hag Happy holidays. <laughs>